Hello, and welcome to The Executive Appeal, a show that convenes the world's most powerful and successful leaders to share mentoring and career advancement advice to help you successfully transition into senior level executive positions. I'm your host, Alex Trimble, award-winning speaker, author, and leadership expert with over a decade of experience coaching and advising some of our nation's most senior level government leaders. So if you're ready to reach your goals, let's get started. Hello, everyone. This is Alex Trimble, and welcome to the Executive Pill. And you know what today is. <laughs> Today's a good day. See, today I have with me just a phenomenal leader in every regards of the word. Miss um, Julie Owono is the Executive Director of the Internet Without Borders and, and an inaugural member of the Facebook Oversight Board. At the intersection of business and human rights, her work focuses on creating channels of collaboration between different sets of actors on the internet. Julie is an affiliate of the Berkman Klein Center on Internet and Society at the Harvard University. Um, she is a member of the Global Partnership on AI created by France and Canada. She is a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on AI for Humanity and a member of the WEF Council <laughs> on the Connected World. Um, today, we're going to figure out what Julie is not a member of. How are you doing today, madam? I'm doing great, uh, Alex. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. And uh, hearing you, it sounds more impressive than it actually is, but we'll get into that during the conversation. <laughs> look, look, we, we both know, we all know that is not the, the fact. So let's, let's actually dive into some of that really quick, just to give us all a breath um, on who you are. And I'll, I'll start off with saying, like, when I started doing my research on you, like, I was super, super impressed. Um, I found an interview of you back when you were like 20-something young. Like, how long have you been doing this work? And, and the fact that you had an interview of you 20-something young, you've been doing this for a while. Absolutely. Uh, it's been that I've been uh, in this space of defending rights uh, on online spaces, uh, defending freedom of expression, particularly making sure that everyone, especially people who look like me, so women, uh, and particularly Black women, can have a space, I mean, can use the space to definitely express themselves, but also to defend their rights, defend their right to exist, their friend, defend their right to dignity. Um, and uh, yeah, so I've been, I've been doing this for quite a while because unfortunately, the issue of making sure that everyone is online, everyone is visible online, everyone has a, a right to speak online. Well, all of this has been a task that so many have been trying to tackle for so many years. Uh, and I'm very happy that I've been contributing to my small level, but contributing to this, uh, yes, global conversation on tech inclusion, rights, uh, and profitability of, you know, whatever happens on the internet for everyone. Well, you mentioned something that I just want to get, we're just going to jump into this conversation if it's cool with you. You said everyone having a right to speak online. Um, that, it, again, it sounds good. It sounds good. But how do you, how do you navigate that, that space between the fight against disinformation, right? Disinformation and hate speech versus the freedom of expression. Absolutely. Uh, that is the fundamental question, I think, of our time. How do we ensure that we can let people do what the internet was intended for? You, let's remember 
the um the the manifesto for uh, a site the cyber independence that was published written by John Perry Barlow who was a, a, a internet activist who's now deceased unfortunately but he he drafted this manifesto with the intent of saying well we have this space where for the first time potentially in history uh we have a space where no government no companies no no intermediary uh, can prevent us from expressing ourselves so we've gone from that time when you know everybody was truly believing that to another time uh probably around 2016 where there was a sort of recognition that well wait a minute yes this is a space where there should be no intervention no intermediary yet at the same time we are humans and as we know humans are capable of the best as well as and so for those times when the worst happens, or at least to prevent the worst from happening, it is important to have a conversation about the limitations. It is important to have a conversation about um, some intermediary interventions that would that are required to make sure that the space that we all want to express ourselves on is a welcoming space that welcomes expression without unnecessarily harming security, safety, and other very important values that we care about. It, you know, again, I'm, I'm loving everything you're talking about and, and you, but what it sounds like to me is you have to walk that line of talking to not both sides, but all sides to understand issues. Um, but as I was just having a conversation with a colleague of mine recently, like not, I don't think only the world is more polarized today. I think, the, I mean, not only the U.S., but the world, like there are factions of people who say that if you even talk to the other side, you are my enemy. For an example, you had to weigh in or in, in your role on the Facebook's oversight um, council, you all had to look at former President Trump's um, banning from the, the Internet and I'm sorry, from the Facebook. Like, how do you Almost do your- the Internet? Let's <laughs> <laughs> so how, how do you do your job? When you, when the world, it feels like so many people are pushing you to be in a camp and it sounds like your mm-hmm. job, you can't be in a camp. Mm-hmm. Yes. No, we can't. Uh, and I have to say ever since I've joined the, 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 the meta now meta oversight board, formerly known as the Facebook oversight board, ever since I joined this, this new type of body, it has been an exercise of humility, frankly. Uh, before that, I had my ideas and I knew that my ideas were the most open in the world and the most, you know, liberal and everything, the most morally right uh, on top of that. But soon I realized that, no, even when you have morally well, well intentions from a moral perspective, uh, it can it can become dangerous. That's the, yeah. the whole history of being a human. Uh, as, as long as we have uh, this this environment where uh, they're not really checks and balances, you're not really, um, you know, there's a form of uh, counterpass to uh, any any idea that becomes dominant. I think dominance of ideas should call out attention in democracy, in well-functioning and healthy democracies. Um, yes, it is important to, 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 um, to, to allow the expression of everyone. I truly believe in that. Of course, without forgetting about the bad things that can happen. And as a Black woman, I do know about the bad things that can happen. And I, and I will even specify as a, an, an African woman. I'm from Cameroon. 
Uh, I grew up in, in Russia, lived in France, now live in the United States. So I, I, I know what the society can have against people who look like me. Uh, but yet, I do think that it's important to, um, yes, to be in discussion always. I always like to give this example. I was 15 years old and I was, I was in Russia at a time when it was, it was very difficult to be a foreigner, a visible foreigner, a, minor, a visible minority, as sometimes we call ourselves. Uh, and uh, precisely because there were groups of neo-Nazis walking free in the streets and who could just decide to be violent with people who looked foreigner. And one day I was in a park with a, a group of friends, three friends to be precise, my best friends from childhood. And we met this group of neo-Nazis. They were two or three. And we had a fascinating conversation. I can tell you until today, I remember that conversation because at first they came, of course, they wanted to attack us. Uh, they were three guys. Uh, but then they were our age. We were all 15, 16 years old, listening to the same music, uh, liking the same shows on TV. And it ended up like that one of the guys told me that his favorite singer in the world is Whitney Houston. And I tell him, you do realize that Whitney Houston <laughs> looks like me, right? And you wanted to beat me up a few minutes ago. And he was like, yes, you're right. And I think something happened there. I've never met that person again, but I'm sure that something yeah. happened that made him question, what am I actually doing? Is, this, is there any logic into what I'm doing? So I'm sharing this story to say that it is important to be confronted sometimes to the ideas that you disagree the most with, not because for the sake of the exercise, no, simply because you can change the point of view of the other person. The other person can also enlighten or, sh or change your point of view on certain aspects. And I think that exchange is extremely important, provided, of course, that there is no harm um, brought with the, the, the speech in question. Of course, I would never interact with someone who would start by saying that all Black people in the world should be killed. That, for me, is not interesting. Or I would never interact. I, I'm not interested in interacting with people in my country. For instance, there is, a, there is an ongoing civil war. And there are a lot of people who are using online spaces to um, inflame the conflict by sharing very derogatory expression towards certain groups. Uh, of course, within a conflict, this is particularly worrying. So, of course, I'm not interested in engaging into that. But I think it's possible to find the right balance to allow discussion, debate, even when we don't agree with it. And I would say probably especially when we don't agree. But it doesn't mean that this should happen in a vacuum. There are ways to hold such conversations. You don't hold a such conversation way when your only interest is to um, inflame people and have yeah, them get yeah. involved in 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 yeah in terrible behaviors online. Um, so yes, long long answer for for sure, which is dialogue should always prevail. Especially, I hope you're still hearing me. Yeah, yeah. You know, so. It, I love everything you brought up and it can just gets my mind going because I can tell you at the beginning of my career, when I was young, I think I was like 24 years old, something like that. I, I read a book by a, honestly, um, Clarence Thomas. I, I read Clarence Thomas's memoirs and um, I can't say that there is anything particular that I've ever uh, agreed with Clarence Thomas on, but I found his story very interesting. And I found his, because of his, his, how he frames a story in this book, I can understand where his perspectives are coming from. Doesn't mean I agree, but I, 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 I understand the perspective. Now, my question, my question ultimately became, 
I, I remember someone actually telling me, hey, Alex, don't tell anyone that you've read that book. I'm like, what? Don't tell anyone you read that book because it, it, they're going to think that you're super conservative. But I'm like, hold up. I, I read liberal books. I read conservative books. I read books about you know supporting technology and, and the, the, the difficulties of technology. I read, I read, learn about everything, but why does this put me in this box? And I was, again, I was very aggressively told, don't tell anyone you read certain books. And so what you're getting at just just really meant a lot for me. And what I want to ask you is, is as you, as you do this work and as you, as you fight for, you know, equality and, and, and rights and human rights on the internet, how do you, how do you do that job? Even knowing that there are certain people there are certain actors on the internet who are pushing agendas that they don't actually believe in, but they're pushing it because it it, it helps them monetarily or helps their 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 okay. position. How do you how do you personally deal with those situations? So I have to say, it, I think it's 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 um it's not an individual's work, frankly. Um, and and I will say here something that I probably haven't said much in public which is it is actually very exhausting today to fight against disinformation and propaganda online when you're a nonprofit such as ours. Very difficult for various reasons. First of all, because we have way less money than the networks that get involved in these business. We know that some of them are supported by, are backed by states such as uh, Russia, such as Israel. Some revelations were made recently by a group called Forbidden Stories. So when you're a nonprofit, um, I can tell you we don't have the means of, of a government, obviously not. Human resources are very limited. And also it's a, it's a space that evolves very rapidly. Um, the actors do change their, their tactics as the technology is evolving. Right now, we're all obsessed with ChatGPT. Imagine what is possible with ChatGPT when you have a little bit of money, just a few ideas, yeah, and you want yeah. to disrupt an election or whatever. So. That answer means that the, the fight against disinformation must always be an endeavor that is uh, a collective endeavor between not only the groups affected, so the groups who see the problem. Usually that's how it happens. It's yeah. a group that's targeted that does see that there is something wrong. Let's remember in 2016, who were the ones who were first calling out the possibility that you know, the, the systems of Facebook could be used against American voters in the United States. It was groups of Black, black voters because, you know, they, they, they face the, the limitations uh, that, that, that they usually face and, and they see very, very rapidly where the problems could come from or could be. So that's one thing, a collaboration between the groups affected, of course, civil society organizations supporting those groups, companies, that is extremely important. Companies must must, and I'm not even saying should, they must play a role by being more proactive. What does that mean, being more proactive? It means, first of all, understanding that your platform will be weaponized. It's not could, it's Mm. will be weaponized. Having necessary trust and safety teams. Uh, One very bad example is what happened on Twitter recently. It was a very, very bad idea to gut the, almost all the team of trust and safety professional whose, whose role is precisely to keep those spaces safe for us all. And yeah. last but not least, who should play a role? Government to some extent, not necessarily by telling us what should be considered truth or false. I think that's very dangerous. And I personally and my organization opposes to that, opposes to government deciding 
setting up disinformation task force or uh, telling the companies, oh, you have to take down this, this, this content in 24 hours because we think we, the police or we, or the Ministry of Interior, um, the Homeland, Se- Homeland, Homeland Security Department, we think this is wrong, so you should take it out. That is prone for danger, for censorship, for all the bad things that we want to avoid. So the, the role of the government should be more in terms of providing a framework and saying, okay, you are a company, uh, you operate social media, uh, just make sure you have those proactive measures in place to be able to face potential weaponization of your platforms. Right now, it's frankly, most of the work against online propaganda is still being done by civil society actors. Companies, of course, have stepped up a little bit, uh, but for some of them, it's very unequal. Uh, but yes, I, my, my, my short response, again, to a long answer is we need to collaborate. There is no way that we can fight against this type of, you know, coordinated, inauthentic behavior, as, as some of the companies call this. Uh, we, there's no way we can fight against this one actor on its own and the others on their own. There's no way. Are you ready to bring your DEI efforts to the next level? Introducing Alex Tremble, a professional speaker who combines expertise and entertainment to create an unforgettable experience for DEI professionals and organizing staff. With a focus on leadership, mentorship, and relationship building, Alex is dedicated to helping organizations attract, develop, and retain diverse and high-qualified leaders. From the 12 pillars of an effective mentoring relationship to the seven must-have leadership skills, Alex provides practical advice that can be immediately implemented. Don't miss out on the opportunity to have Alex at your next event. Contact team at alextrimble.com to book the speaker who will take your organization's diversity and inclusion journey to new heights. You know, you talk about weaponization and how easy it is. It, 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 this is a funny story, but I'm going to get to a, a more serious point. Um, Dave Chappelle, the comedian Dave Chappelle, um, he was giving, an, I think he was talking on his own podcast, and, and he said a few years ago, um, someone created a Twitter account with his name. And he was like, he's going to fight it, but then he's like, hey, look, actually, the, the guy's pretty funny. You know, I'll, I'll let him keep going, do his stuff. You know, I'm profiting. I'm not making have to pay him anything. Um, until that guy started targeting other comedians, start really making mean comments towards them, right? And mm-hmm. one of his other, his friends who was being targeted um, was Cat Williams. Cat Williams, another comedian. Um, Cat Williams' Twitter account, and starts going back hard at Dave Chappelle, right? And so now there's this, this public feud that's going on between these two big comedians. But again, the, the actor Dave Chappelle side, not Dave Chappelle, it's someone who has that, that, that account. Um, so Dave Chappelle actually runs into Cat Williams, like, like maybe a year later, some of that, and then says, hey, look, Cat, I don't got a Twitter account. And Cat Williams says, hey, I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> this public feud that people are looking at and watching, like, oh, my God, what's going on? Like, these are not the people. And then so so when you then talk about chat, uh, GBT and you talk about, um, I saw oh, oh, recently that someone used AI to to have, I think it was like some woman sing Whitney Houston's song that never sung it. And so it was like, but it looked like they were singing. It sounded like they were singing it. So when, when we were, t- again, I'm bringing this full circle. When you and I last spoke, uh, saw each other, we were talking, we were in Aspen talking about Meta. Um, 
um, or sorry, the metaverse, not necessarily meta. And one thing I think that came to light was that technology is moving so fast, so fast. Will we as humans be able to stay in front of it from a sociological standpoint, from a, um, a, a philosophy standpoint, what should and should not be created? And are we even asking those questions? Like, what are your, do you have a reaction to what was just shared? So that, that part of the conversation in Aspen uh, and, and what you're raising here is really something that, that's keeping me up at night recently. And, and I think the broad, I guess the broader question that you're asking is, well, since tech is evolving so rapidly, where or what type of safeguards can we make sure exist no matter the technology that comes up? And that is the fundamental question we need to answer right now. When we talk about chat GPT, when we talk about AI capable of creating persona online, I can, I can really tell you a story, another very funny, it's not funny, I'm sorry. It's funny in the sense, interesting. It, it's about a, a very small country located in West Africa uh, where it's called Gabon, Gabon, uh, if you prefer with the, the, the English accent. And there, the, the pre- in 2018, the president suffered a stroke and was not seen in the country for like six months, if I remember well. And suddenly he reappeared on January uh, the 30, uh, sorry, December 31st for the New Year's address. Uh, he made a, an address to his people on Facebook using Facebook Live. Actually, he was, the, his address was retransmitted from the public television to Facebook Live because at the time, uh, the, the feature of recording uh, lives which had just come up. And so some television channels were, were using it. And so he comes up, does his address, but then a lot of people doubt that it's him and started questioning, is this actually a deep fake? This was a time when we were just starting to talk about deep fake. And so we took yeah. this case and, 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 and went to, to see companies. We even did an investigation, worked on an investigation with the uh, um, Mother Jones, uh, the, the online publication, uh, in which we were saying, right, these technologies are not widespread for now. But given the type of discussion that this case is, uh, is, is creating, it's food for thought for whoever wants to think about anticipating on the dangers, right? Anticipating on, on a world where any type of information could be doubted. Because here you had a public address by a president that was not believed by its mm-hmm. own citizens, mm-hmm. that gave us a glimpse into the world in which we probably are heading. Uh, and and we, were, we met with, yes, many companies, including Meta at the time, to tell them we need to uh, double down on research to, um, to uh, you know, better understand what the potential harms can be. Uh, we need to be very careful before we launch publicly all this. The move fast and break things mindset should be behind us. We know it doesn't work. Uh, it does pay a little bit, but it, it will backlash at some point, probably in five, 10, 10 years, and you will have to pay a lot of money to society for the harms you've caused. So, um, but unfortunately, I have to say that that message is, is not really penetrating yet uh, in spaces that matter. Because if it had, ChatGPT probably wouldn't have, you know, launched itself without a robust set of policies with regards to whether or not you can create disinformation with those tools. Um, same with, we know there are so many tools developed in, 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 in China, for instance. China is really good at investing in AI research, sometimes with good intentions. I'll give you another example. They, they, they 
faced with the criticism that AI could not recognize features of Black mm-hmm. populations, mm-hmm. Uh, well, a, a company in China decided to deploy a surveillance, a public camera surveillance system um, in, in a country in, in Africa. I think it was Uganda or Zambia. I can't remember exactly. And with the aim of saying, okay, at least we will get as many features possible about what a Black person could look like. And where mm-hmm. else to do that than in Africa, where there are the most Black people in the world. Um, so that's a good intention. But yet, think about the, the weaponization. Think about that. We're talking about governments that are not necessarily the most democratic in the world, mm-hmm. that do not necessarily have the, yes, the checks and balances to make sure that whoever uses it in the public, I mean, in, in the government will not misuse it to target activists they don't agree with, to target and arrest them. Unfortunately, this has happened. Uh, and so all this to say, it's, it's very important. And I know one of the exercises we did during, during that, that, that Aspen meeting was kind of draft a sort of constitution of the metaverse. Yeah. I think my opinion and what keeps me up at night is, yes, what, is, what are those what would look? What, what would a constitution of AI look like? Just giving an example. Um, what type of rights would we put in there? What types of um, safe guardrail measures would we put in there? Who would be in charge of enforcing those guardrail measures, etc.? All these questions that we ask ourselves usually in the off- offline world when, when we're about to create something big, but we usually don't take that time to reflect when we want to launch online tools. So yes. Very, very interesting, interesting kind of thing. That, that exercise of creating the, the rules, the road, um, the, so what was it called again? I can't remember. Um, I think it was the constitution of the metaverse, but probably yeah. wasn't that the word. That, that, that exercise was very enlightening because again, it's full circle conversation. You go into this thinking, oh yeah, this is easy. These answers should be self-evident. Let's bang this out. You get into the room and people start asking very interesting questions about, okay, are you going to take this person's right away? Are they, are they not allowed to do this? Are they not? Like, could, could this be used and weaponized against someone because of X, Y, and Z? And it gets really complex really quickly. So this underscores your point in, um, in the beginning of our conversation. Like, this stuff is not easy. And if it was easy, it'd be done already. Yeah. Um, and so I, I wanted to throw another one at you before we, I know we have to wrap up relatively soon. Um, I'd love to hear, like, is there anything cool on the horizon? Like, any cool technology? Is there anything coming on the horizon that you've learned about? You're like, oh, this is pretty cool. <laughs> Frankly, I, I'm, uh, despite the skepticism, I'm personally very excited about the possibilities of uh, immersive spaces. And of course, we think we can use the metaverse, we can use another word if that makes people more comfortable. But I do feel like, Breaking the, the the physical barrier to continue this incredibly unique opportunity to learn thanks to online and connectivity, uh, I think that that new that novel type of experience will propel even further the yes the the, the knowledge society that we're trying to build for the whole humanity. I'm really confident that giving the opportunity, for instance, to a a school a school student. Uh, I don't know, in, uh, in remote African village, giving them the, the very small opportunity to see what it would look like to walk, I don't know, on, uh, on uh, Fifth Avenue, for instance, for, for 
talking about countries that are landlocked, that are from where it's very difficult to travel because visas, because ticket, air tickets is expensive, all of this. For me, this speaks a lot to, yes, the possibilities that you can create in the mind of a child like, like that. Um, not only for children, also for adults. I recently tried myself a, an immersive experience that, that was set up by, and that's still available, by Time Magazine, in which you could walk as if you were walking in 1963 during the, the, the March of Freedom. And, oh my God, it, it was almost as if I was there, except that I had contextual information that was shared by people who were there and who were interviewed for that. So, yes, I, I, I'm really excited about that. At the same time, of course, I'm, I'm paying attention and very interested in the conversations that we've had, what could potentially go wrong. And there is a lot that can, and unfortunately, that will go wrong. But I'm excited about the possibilities that this type of innovation offers. I, I am too. I, I think, again, after our, our conversation in, in Aspen, I think I was, I think I was like really excited. And then during the conversation, I learned about just how big this could be. And I was like, wow, this is really excited. But by the end of the conversation, I'm like, oh my God, we need some guardrails. Like, <laughs> I just... The, the capability and, and, you know, there's a lot of people who think that technology is the savior. Technology is going to fix all these problems. But you know, a couple of things came to mind. One, it, there was an example brought up that it's great to say, OK, it allows the debt person living in that country or that space who don't have access to money, allows them to experience something. But then someone brought up a point like, which is really cool. Interesting. Not cool. Um, well, who gets to experience being fully immersed? It's people who, one, have the resource to have it, but two, have the safety to be in a place where you can be cut off from the world because you are you don't see maybe, you don't see nothing, you don't hear nothing, and you have to be in a place that's safe. And that is, that's a, that's a reality. And, and I think the, one of the last points that I think we share, we kind of ended on, was that we can't look for technology to solve our social problems. You know, I watched recently the um, iRobot with Will Smith, and they were worried because at the end of the day, it was the robot, the AI that, that ultimately started attacking everyone. And I think it's not the AI that we're worried about. It's more so the people who create the AI, because it's the creator, it's the foundation that they're it's created on. Like you said, whether they can see certain faces, whether they, whether they have certain stereotypes that are built into the software and the, and, and that people don't even know they have, right? Like, this is, yeah. yeah, I think it was very interesting and eye-opening experience. It is, it is. And uh, it, it all comes to, yes, the question of inclusivity. Let's not forget, like you rightly said, not only there are people, there are places around the world where you cannot wear a device and be isolated and be safe. Uh, not only that, but there are also lots of, there's half of the population still doesn't have access to internet. Um, although that sounds mind-boggling in 2023 now, uh, still 4 million people around the world are still not aware of what we're doing right now, which is you're in one place, I'm in another one, and we're chatting about, uh, about the future of technology and potentially the future of humanity. So it, being aware of this is what keeps you grounded. That's what has kept me very grounded because... You know, it, it's very easy when you're in this space to, you know, uh, get into yourself and, and yeah. be so proud of what you're doing because, you know, there's 
it's, it's very easy. It seems very easy. There's money for some of these companies and, you know, it's, but yet it's, it's not the, rea- this is not the reality. The reality is that there's still a lot of people who don't even know what we're talking about. And so it's important to make sure that those people are aware of what we're talking about and can contribute to the space that we are creating that allegedly will benefit everyone. So very important to remain grounded. (laughs) Julie, uh, thank you so much for being here. I I know you got to jump off really soon to talk to the prime minister to a couple of few countries. Um, But I want to ask, is there anything you'd like to share with our audience um, as we begin to wrap up? Yes, um, I want to share probably two things, two main things. Um, The first thing is it's important to be aware of the interconnectedness of the internet. Internet is just, it's not just you. uh, It's you being connected to people from your entourage, entourage, but also beyond your entourage. And also understand that this is a global space. Really, when you're online, there's no such thing as borders. That's why we call ourselves internet without borders. Uh, At least for now, there are no borders. So we hope it remains like that. And the second thing may be uh, which is linked to that, uh, which I would like probably people to take away from this conversation is what what is what is my role in making sure that those guardrails, the, that tech doesn't go wrong, right? I'm not just a consumer. I'm not just a user. I'm not just a content creator. I am a contributor to uh, a space that is evolving rapidly, uh, that does bring in a lot of benefits to whoever creates it. But actually, we're all creating this. We're all contributing to this. So how, how can we make sure that the contributions that we bring are not misused uh, for interests other than benefiting the connectivity that we're looking for, the, um, the, the relationship that we want to build on these spaces, the inclusivity that we want on those spaces and all of these things. So yes, be a citizen of the online spaces and not just a user as sometimes some want you to believe you are. <laughs> Julie, you are phenomenal. Everyone, look, you know what I'm about to say, so I'm not going to say it. Never mind, I'm still going to say it. Look, if you found something of value from this conversation, don't keep it to yourself. Don't don't be that guy, that, that girl. Look, don't just look back, reach back. Bring someone else to this table. And even better, bring this information to them. Make sure you're sharing, you're clicking, you're liking, you're commenting, share your ideas and Again, if this set on your heart and, and opened your eyes to something you didn't know about, I promise you, one of your friends, family members, or colleagues had known about the same thing. So if always, as always, I appreciate everyone for listening. I appreciate you so much, Julie, for being here. Everyone, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving. See ya. Thanks for listening to The Executive Appeal with Alex Trumbull. I invite you to follow The Executive Appeal wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow me, your host, Alex Trimble, across all socials or via email for exclusive webinars, courses, and his speaking engagements on continued topics of executive leadership. So until next time, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving.